0: Well, we come now to our study uh, in the Gospel of Mark, and I have to admit, uh, we might be tackling the hardest text in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13. Uh, We began this section last week on uh, what's called the Olivet Discourse. It was a discourse or a discussion with his disciples on the Mount of Olives as they looked over Jerusalem, particularly over that splendid temple. And if you'll remember, the disciples had asked Jesus, um, because Jesus had said, they they were wondering at the the beauty and the majesty of the temple, and they had wondered uh, what Jesus meant when he said... Truly I say to you, there won't be a stone standing left of that temple. Uh, and that was a shocking thing to hear. This great, massive piece of architecture, a wonder of the world was going to be taken down, stone upon stone. And they asked him, how, when will this happen and how will we know? What signs are you going to give? And so Jesus talked to them, spoke to them about the particulars um, without very much particulars, saying at the end of the day, we don't know the time or the hour. So we're in the middle of this discourse, uh, chapter uh, 13 of Mark, and we're going to start in verse 14 and go to the end of the chapter. There's a lot here, and I, honestly, I, I don't know that we'll touch on everything, and you will probably leave with questions. After you know, a week's worth of study and wrestling, I still have questions. If you go to the commentators, they're very much, uh, tentative in their statements on specifics with regard to this text. Um, they have questions. Uh, so there's challenges to this because at the heart of it, it's a prophetic work, right? It's a work of prophecy that's looking forward. And by its very nature, there are things that are left Uncertain. So, I say all that at the outset. Uh, let's go to the text. We'll read verses 14 to the end of the chapter, 14 to verse 36. Hear God's word. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we need the help of your spirit to understand it. And Lord, in our finitude of understanding, give us the grace uh, to, to, to know Jesus through it, to see him clearly. Even if there are details we can't grasp, we ask that you would show us clearly the wonders of Christ and help us to rest in him. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm not going to do any lengthy introduction. I want to jump into the text because there's there's a lot here, right? And I'm not necessarily even going to be able to touch on every detail. I'll do as much as I can. Um, but there is one big idea that I want us to think about. W- one thing that I want us to, to consider as we look at the text, and that is, I want us to be vigilant, right? To not lose heart because the Lord is coming again. And I think that is the big idea of this text, to be vigilant, to be on guard, to not lose heart because the Lord is coming again. And there are three things uh, that I want to look at with regard to this. First, I want us to see that God is the Lord of history. He is the sovereign Lord of history. We're going to look at that. Secondly, I just want us to see the Lord of history is coming again. The Lord Jesus is coming again, and the surety of that. And then finally, I want us to think about this in terms of how we act, how we respond. And I want us to not lose heart, despite our circumstances, despite whatever becomes Whatever comes, but I want us to be vigilant as we work and endure and as we await that glorious day. So, first, let's look at God as the Lord of history. I've already mentioned how challenging the text is to interpret. And one of the things that makes it challenging is that we are not used to prophetic or apocalyptic writing, it's just not part of our. Uh, regular reading. It is in Scripture. We can go back to books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and other places where it comes out, but it isn't something that we are commonly uh, finding a reading. It's not part of our, our, our sort of general life. And much of Jesus' teaching here is either a direct quotation from the Old Testament the prophets, or he uses the language or certain phrases that come that come out of those Old Testament prophetic uh, writings, and some of those things are odd to us. What is the abomination of desolation? Right, and that's a big question we're going to have in the text. Um, and what are these allusions to the sun being darkened and the moon shedding no light and stars falling from the sky? Those are. That's, that, that, that's hard for us to get our mind around. And, and I'll just use that as an example, that that verse 24 that says, After the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Right, that's right there, verse 24. But what I want us to see is this is language pulled out of the Old Testament. It was a sort of common language in those sort of prophetic Uh, books, I'm going to give a couple examples. It's hard for us to picture, right, the stars and, and everything going away, but it's typical language in these prophetic works. When the prophet Isaiah was prophesying against Babylon, and he was speaking of the destruction of Babylon, he used this same kind of over-the-top descriptive language. He was talking about the, de- the demise or the downfall of Babylon. And he says this, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. And then these, these words, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Very similar language, right, to what we see here in the Gospel of Mark. The prophet Isaiah used apocalyptic end-of-the-world pictures to describe God's judgment on Babylon. Does anybody know how Babylon fell? Was the sky darkened? Did the moon go away? Did the stars fall from the sky? No, he sent the Medes and the Persians. He sent another nation to bring judgment on them. But we see another example of this in Ezekiel. Ezekiel in a prophet, uh, a, a prophecy of lament for the destruction of Pharaoh and of Egypt. So he's... These prophet Ezekiel is writing about the demise where it's like almost in a lament style for the downfall of Egypt. He says, when I blot, this is the Lord speaking, of course, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. It's interesting. But Ezekiel and Isaiah and now the Lord Jesus. And we'll look. We'll come to that section. But what I want us to see, and I'm using this illustration to help give you a sense of how the language that Jesus is using comes directly from these Old Testament prophetic works. But there's a second thing. So it's not just that he's using these allusions and this language from the Old Testament. There's a second thing I want to talk about in how we understand a difficult text like this. Right? Right? And I'm going to use a concept that I've t- t- talked about in the community group, but I think is helpful for all of us, and this is the idea of prophetic foreshortening. That's a, that's a very seminarian way of saying something, prophetic foreshortening. Um, and before your eyes glaze over, which they already may be, um, depending how interested you are in these sorts of things, um, prophecy throughout Scripture has multiple horizons. What do I mean by that? There is a near horizon, and maybe multiple horizons after that, culminating in a final climactic horizon. That's often how prophecy is done, and we're going to see that in our text in the Gospel of Mark, in Jesus' own prophetic uh, utterance here. If you've ever hiked up a mountain, You've probably experienced this sort of foreshortening, right? When you plan out your, your hike, you, you see, you draw a line on the map to the top of the mountain, right? But when you're on the mountain and you're going up the pathway, there's often what we call false peaks, right? They, it looks like, ah, we're almost to the top and you get up to that top. This thing is huge and you're like, we got to climb up there and you climb up and what happens? You get to the top of that first peak oh, no, I've got to go, keep going. There's a bigger, more grand peak uh, behind it, but it was off in the distance and sort of uh, shaded by the other peak. So it is the same with prophecies. They have a near-term fulfillment that dominates the field of vision, but in reality, they're just a foretaste of the greater thing that is to come. That's what's going on in our text here. This morning, in fact, Jesus lays out for us a peak that seems so massive to his disciples that he's concerned for their welfare that they'll lose sight of the larger peak. And and this is really at the heart of my first point. Take heart when 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 these. Things come when these tribulations come, when it seems like this grand thing is in front of us. Take heart, God is the Lord of history, and He's working these things out not just in His disciples' lives, but in ours. The things that happen are going to happen for a purpose the good, the bad, and the ugly. All of it. All of human history falls under the purview of God's sovereign hand. This is an important truth that we, hold, we ought to hold on to. Paul says in those glorious words of Romans 8, he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for, the, for, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a, it's a, it's a promissory statement saying, God, the Lord of Heaven and earth is the Lord of history. And not only that, he has a particular care and concern for his people. And he's working all things together for our good as his church. And this is what he's telling his disciples here in our text this morning. And he begins by saying, but when you see the abomination of desolation. And right there, everybody's, the what? What? The, abomination, the abominable snowman? What? The abomination of desolation? Strange words, right? Remember, going back to that little preamble I just gave you, Jesus is using figurative language drawn directly from the Old Testament. And secondly, he's also painting a picture of a near-term prophetic horizon. So remember that idea of foreshortening. This is the near-term prophetic horizon as we look at this idea of the abomination of desolation. What is it? Well, the term is first used by the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. In summary, Daniel prophesied about a foreign king who would come and set up an abomination that makes desolate. That's the text. If you go back, you can read about it in Daniel chapter 11. Um, and it, Daniel's tough. So if you go back and read it, you may have more questions, and that's okay. We can talk. You can come to me. But that's what it says. It talked about this abomination that makes desolate. What is that? Well, it's something that something or someone that would be so detestable and disgusting to the people of God that it would be called an abomination, right? And it would make desolate. What does that mean? Well, it would wipe things out. Whatever was good and right and central to the people of Judea and Jerusalem, this abomination would make desolate all those things that were good and right. Not only would this wicked, awful, terrible thing happen that desolated, but the people in Jerusalem would be terrorized. That was the prophecy in Daniel chapter 11. Now, Daniel wrote sometime around 600 B.C., Okay. now about, I don't know, 500 or so years later, There was, in that period between the New Testament and the Old Testament, something that happened, something that fulfilled this kind of prophecy, this word from Daniel. There was a Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who, in order to squash what he saw as rebellion in Judea and Jerusalem, sent his forces into Jerusalem and Judea to terrorize the people. Not only did he kill many people in the city, but he sent his troops. His troops took over the temple area. They went into the temple. They went into the Holy of Holies. They set up a statue of Zeus, and they started sacrificing pigs and doing other worse things in the temple. Jewish scholars have since seeing this as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, which occurred in 168 or so B.C. But now we come to the New Testament. There you go. There's the the first rise, if you will, the first mountain. Now we come to the New Testament, and Jesus says, just as in Daniel, there's going to be another abomination of desolation, something that's going to happen here in this city, in this place. Okay? Is everybody still with me? And Jesus is saying, "When you see this abomination happen, when you see this desecration of the temple area, when it when, you, when it happens, run, take off, literally head for the hills, right? Head for the hills, flee Jerusalem, flee Judea, get out of Dodge. Don't lose a minute. If you're pregnant or you have a babe in your arms, it's going to be hard because you've got to go fast." You need to get out of there. If it happens in winter, well, that's a problem, too, because winter was their rainy season. The roads would be muddy. But you need to go, to go as quickly as you possibly can. Remember last week, Jesus said the temple would be destroyed. That happened in A.D. 70. Well, leading up to that destruction, there would be terrible events that would occur in the temple itself. Even at the hands of Jews, like this zealot group that I've mentioned in the past, their concern was to overthrow Rome. They were the ones who were insurrectionists and who were, who were taking matters into their own hand. They actually went a couple years before AD 70. They actually went and they took over Jerusalem. And they took over the temple, and they they did things in the temple mount that were wicked in God's eyes. Not only that, they took out the priests and put up their own priests. They did all sorts of horrible things. Maybe that was the abomination of desolation that Jesus refers to. I don't know. I don't know. Scholars don't know. They just point to that as a possible thing. But eventually, the Roman army, led by their future Caesar, Titus, came and laid siege to Jerusalem to squash these rebellious zealots. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian who himself was wounded in this conflict, he had gone to try to negotiate with these insurrectionists. Josephus was injured by an arrow. But Josephus said this, he said, that 1.1 million Jews died in Jerusalem. 1.1 million. One city. Now, how accurate that number is, I don't know. But you think about a siege. It was right around the time of Passover, and the city was swelled with people. And Rome surrounds the city and laid siege to it with this excess of people in the city. What happens? There are accounts of starvation and death. It was the definition of terror. So what do we do with this? All right, great, Rob. You've just told us all about the abomination of desolation that happened in AD 68 to 70. So what does that have to do with you and me sitting here today? Right? I think it's instructive for us. We are reminded that God is the Lord of history. And this is a particularly important point to remember in the midst of great terror and tribulation. You see, the things that God has planned will surely come to pass. He says as much in verse 31. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, whatever I decree will happen. Jesus is saying that it may feel as though the world has come to an end. But remember, it's part of my plan. So what was his plan? Why the destruction of Jerusalem? Why the the devolution of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple? What was God's plan in this? Jesus is prophesying Judgment against Jerusalem. That's what this is. This this section here on the abomination of desolation is a judgment against Jerusalem. AD 70 was temporal judgment for the rebellious Israelites. And it came to pass. It was not just some chaotic random machination of the world. He ordained it on account of the sin of his people. Okay, it was a judgment, but I want us not to miss this other part about God and history. It was an awful judgment, but in that judgment, the Lord showed his mercy. Verse 20 notes that the Lord would cut short the days of tribulation. He wouldn't let them go to their final extent, right? Right? As the Lord of history, he does not bring upon the world what we all deserve. This is mercy. For if he did not, if he didn't stay his hand, not one human being would survive. I think that's an important thing to remember when we go through various tribulations and trials. In some ways, they point to the brokenness of our world and the sin that has in inculcated everything it is part of everything and it reminds us that the the just dessert for sin is judgment by God but I don't want us to miss that there's mercy the Lord may permit such terror for a time for his purposes but there is mercy His judgment. One such mercy is that he watches over and cares for his people. Notice that the preservation of Jerusalem is on account of God's elect, God's people. He didn't allow the terror to go on forever, and for the sake of his elect, he stopped it. But secondly, not only only is there mercy in staying his hand, not allowing the, the tribulation to go on for so long, but secondly, Jesus graciously warns his people to flee the city on that day. According to the 4th century historian Eusebius, Christian historian, the church in Jerusalem on that day, around 68 AD, fled to the hillside city of Perea. And there's a secondary thing. Not only was the church preserved as they went up into the mountaintops, and into the hillsides, to the cities that are outside of this terrible thing that was going to happen. Not only that did that happen, but as the church goes out, what happens? As Christians flee the tribulation, what happens with the gospel? It goes out to the ends of the earth. And so there's grace in that as well. God's hand of providence is always present, even amidst tribulation. It reminds me of how Corey Tenboom, stuck in the horrors of a concentration camp full of terror, thanked God for the fleas. Right? Because it kept the guards away from their, their tent and their, their sleeping quarters. Don't lose heart. Even in the midst of tribulation, God is the Lord over history, and he cares for us, and he provides for us all that we need to endure. But that tribulation and terror was just a small picture, a reminder to the disciples that this world is not our home. The temple in all its glory was just a temporary picture of God's presence with his people. But there is a day yet to come in history when we will dwell forever in the presence of our Lord. And history is moving towards that day. And the things revealed here will surely come to pass. Which brings me to my second point. The Lord is coming again. The first point took a while because i got to set everything up. So just bear with me. But the Lord is coming again. God is the Lord of history. And history is not a cycle, right? It's not... Reincarnation of the Eastern myth. It's not, uh, you know, the circle of life. We live and we die and we live and we die and we become the earth and other things live and die. History is not a circle. History is aiming towards a goal, towards an end. And Jesus shifts in his teaching here from that near-term calamity of the destruction of the temple, which to them probably felt like the end of the world. Can you imagine Your whole existence is wrapped around this great city and this temple and the worship of the temple. And Jesus says it's going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And they would say, That's the end of the world. And he's saying it's not. That's a near term calamity. But it's not the end. So he shifts to the end. Verse 24 says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Again, as I mentioned at the very beginning, I said he picks up prophetic language and then expresses what the end is like. Uh, He uses metaphorical terms here. I illustrated this already, how I mentioned it in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Did the sky actually, did the stars go away? Did Did the lights dim in the sky? No. It was meant to be a picture, a calamitous picture of judgment. And now Jesus is taking that same language and describing not the end of any one particular nation, Yes, Jerusalem will fall, but now he's turned his attention to that great peak beyond. He's looking out to the great peak, the Mount Everest, and he's saying, that peak there, at that moment. How do we know he's moving to this climactic end? Well, it's in the description of the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Again, this is all language picked up from the prophets. This is particularly picked up from the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, where uh, the, pro- the Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. So he's picking up that language from Daniel. And of course, Jesus is speaking about himself. He's speaking about him, the glorious one who will come with the clouds, which is a picturesque way of saying he'll come in full splendor and glory. It's the same way that he ascended, right? We we saw that earlier in our our service. And he's going to come in the same manner, full of splendor and glory. But there's a slight difference between Daniel's prophecy and and Jesus' prophecy. In Daniel's vision, the Son of Man is approaching the Ancient of Days, meaning approaching God the Father himself. And God the Father gives him glory and dominion and power. In Jesus' vision, the Son of Man is approaching the world with all dominion and power at His disposal, and He has come to gather His people to Himself from all the corners of the earth, from one edge of heaven to the other. You see the difference? In one, Jesus is going to the Heavenly Father. In this one, He's coming from the Heavenly Father down to us to gather us together. That's why earlier in this chapter, Jesus said that the gospel needs to go out to all the nations. Jesus is coming again, but first he must prepare a people for himself from every tribe, every tongue and nation. So what does it mean for us that Jesus is coming again and that it's the end of all things? What's the significance? I mean, that, that maybe that's an obvious, maybe that's an obvious thing. Well, if we see this as the greater peak, that great Everest, if you will, greater than the destruction of Jerusalem. If we see Jesus and that coming again as the culmination of all these pictures that have already come before, whether it was Antiochus Epiphanes or whether it was the destruction of Jerusalem, then we have to understand that his coming again means judgment. That language of the sun and the moon being darkened and the falling of the stars is language of Judgment. And what does that mean for you and me? Well, it's a warning to repent. It's a, it's a, it's a call to flee to the mountains. Really, it's a call to flee to the mountain of God, to Zion, to go and hide ourselves in the cleft of the rock, to, to go to Jesus, repent and turn. That's what it is. It's a reminder that when Jesus comes again, He's coming to judge. We ought never to forget this. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he calls all peoples of the earth to repent and believe. Friends, don't wait. Don't hesitate. Peter says, The Lord is not slow as some count slowness. He's coming to judge. But secondly, he's coming to save. He's coming to free us from the tribulations of this world and the sin and sorrow that clings to us so closely. He is coming to gather us in and to bring with him a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness and justice reign forever, where the love of God and Christ is in all and through all and over all. Jesus coming again is a great consolation for the believer. Finally, this brings me to my final point, conclusion. The question that remains is, okay, Rob, how ought we to live? How ought we to live in light of this truth that God is the Lord of history, that he's working all things together, and that Jesus is coming again to judge and to save? Well, it tells us here in the text so we can just look directly it tells us not to lose heart, but to be vigilant, to be on guard as we work, as we endure to the end, as we await the day of his coming. Jesus uses an illustration to help his disciples understand as they're going, coming to grips with what Jesus is teaching them. You know, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. There's groves of olive trees, and there are fig trees, and there are other Uh, other trees, but he looks at one of the fig trees, and there he paints a picture for them. He said they're they're there at the time of year that the the, the leaves would be shooting out from the branches, and by summertime, the tree would be bearing the fruit of the fig. The figs would be in, in, in season. And Jesus is saying, the things that I've described with regards to the destruction of Jerusalem are not far off. In fact, it will happen within your generation's time. It's going to happen. It's going to happen fairly quickly. And he's calling them to be ready, to be prepared, to not be surprised. They wouldn't know the day or the hour, but they were always to be on guard. And he uses another illustration to make this point. Not just a point for the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem, but his final coming, he says, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, he says, stay awake, for you don't know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come and suddenly and you find yourself asleep. And this is for us. Not only as we look back and see how the Lord has worked through history, now as we look at the destruction of Jerusalem, but even more as we look forward to the day when He comes again, what type of lives ought we to live? A few things. Be on guard. That's the first thing. Now I said, be vigilant. It's the same idea. I think it's easy to be lulled to sleep. It's been two millennia since Christ walked on this earth. We can begin to think like the scoffers of 2 Peter who say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers all fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Jesus is saying, no, be vigilant. Jesus is coming again. Peter noted this. He said, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word and that by the means of these, wor- uh, by the means of these, the waters, the world then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, with that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Be vigilant. It is certain that he is coming again. Be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. So be diligent, be vigilant, be on guard. Second, this illustration of work, I think, is a helpful illustration. It says, we are called to labor in this world, to engage in it, to cultivate it. Don't be idle for that day, waiting for that day, but work in light of the fact that the day reveals our work and tests it. Therefore, do all things to the glory of God. Thirdly, hasten the day. What do I mean by that? Spread the good news of the coming of the Son of Man with glory, that in him is judgment, but that in him is salvation. Tell the world of his glory and his love. Hasten the day. Fourthly and finally, rest in the knowledge that Jesus is coming again. He's coming to bring judgment and salvation. But here's the good news. He's already come. He's already satisfied God's wrath. And so the day of visitation need not be one of dread. For those who trust and rest in the coming King know that his coming means salvation, restoration, deliverance from tribulation, freedom from sin, freedom from sorrow, freedom from grief. Believer, Find comfort knowing that he has made for us a refuge on Mount Zion through his glorious Son. God is the sovereign Lord of history, who is bringing all things under subjection to his Son, who is coming again with justice to bring us home to glory. Flee to him. Find your refuge in him. Prepare for his coming with vigilance, with hope, and with love. Let's pray.